Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Welcome back to another Moving to Live episode. As you heard in the intro, we're a podcast for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados. We try to avoid the silos and that we try to pick people of different knowledge levels involved in different aspects of movement. Today, we have part two of our interview with Neely Gracie. Neely is a second-generation elite runner and a second-generation coach. We're going to talk a little bit about what it takes to be an elite runner. It's not just having a lot of talent. It's a lot of hard work. We're also going to talk a little bit about her coaching business, and we'll have some interesting aspects to chat about because I just learned yesterday that she is expecting her first child, so her professional running career is taking a slight turn before it goes back to the running. So, Neely, thank you for taking the opportunity to talk to Moving to Live. I'm so excited to be back with you guys. So the first thing was, I got an email from you yesterday saying, I think we'll probably want to talk about this. I've just learned that I'm pregnant, so my next marathon is going to be waiting or pregnancy and leading up to childbirth. How is that going to change your long-term goals for your running career? To rewind, this has been something that I've struggled with for many years. Um, my husband and I have been married for five years, and our initial plan was to actually um, try to have a baby after 2016. Um, but I had had such a crappy 2014, um, and I was finally on the upswing with 20 in 2015 that I wasn't quite ready. Um, and we decided, you know, career wise, that's when I wanted to, you know, attempt my first marathon and things are just really clicking. So I decided, Hey, you know, there's plenty of time. We'll figure this out down the road. Um, so, you know, that was two years ago and this past year, um, I really focused on, uh, working on my speed in the spring. I even did a 5k. I did, um, a lot of half marathons and 
I was second at two U.S. championships, third at another one, um, really was trying to go for a national title, which was a goal of mine. Didn't quite happen, but I had an extremely successful spring. And I sort of came off of that with like, you know, this, this sense of, um, you know, feeling like I had accomplished a lot. Um, I was still hoping to do a fall marathon and I planned to run New York again. Um, and then I ended up getting an injury. I had some really bad post-tib tendonitis, um, and it just was not allowing me to do any speed work. So after a few weeks of trying to fight that, I was getting really frustrated and I just decided I had to call it quits. I couldn't train for a marathon if I couldn't do any workouts. So I called it quits, took a couple weeks off, started to feel a lot better. Um, and during this time I found out my sister was pregnant. Um, three of my friends had babies or were pregnant at that time as well. And I started to have this really difficult, like, complex of, you know, I have this career and I can't complete things in my career if I'm pregnant, but I don't know if I'm ready to be dedicated a hundred percent to my career because I have this other goal of mine. And it's been a lifelong goal that I've always wanted a family. And so my husband and I sort of talked and we were like, well, this is a really good year because it's an off season. So there's no world championships and there's no Olympics. Um, so it may be, you know, good timing. Um, let's just give it a try, see what happens. Um, if not, we'll just focus on a spring marathon. And um, it gave me something during that uh, t- period of injury to, you know, be a little bit excited about and happy about because, you know, my one goal of running the New York marathon was no longer an option. And so now it gave me a different goal that I could focus on. And it happened pretty quick. We were pretty excited about that. Um, And so I feel like this is the right thing. Like I'm at such a peace with it because I know that, yes, I'm pausing my career for, you know, roughly a year and a half, um, you know, to take the time to be pregnant, deliver and recover, um, and then try and work back into training. But I was just so ready. And like I said, you know, we had had these discussions in 2016, um, and it wasn't the best time. And right now, everything seems to be, um, you know, perfectly set up and I'm 27 um as history has shown us it seems like uh the the top female marathoners are all in their mid-30s and thanks to Shalane um you know maybe 36 is the special year so I have nine years of um you know great prep to uh have my big marathon and so I think that that's really reassuring seeing um you know other women who have had kids and have come back, uh, you know, Kara Goucher, Stephanie Bruce, um, you know, Sarah Vaughn, they've all been extremely helpful. I have so many other friends who are runners who had, you know, have just recently had kids and are trying to figure out if they want to come back or not. And I just feel like I'm in such a good situation right now. Um, so we're thrilled and I, there's a ton of honor in becoming an Olympian. And while that's 
certainly still a goal of mine. Um, I don't think anything can really trump uh, parenthood and, you know, the amazing miracle it is of growing a little baby and becoming a mom. So I'm really excited about what lies ahead. Congratulations. I think uh, one of the things that people often forget when they get focused on a goal is sometimes that goal kind of takes a right-hand turn or it takes a slight detour. You've described in part one of the interview kind of your buildup to becoming a professional runner and how you didn't even run anything longer than a 10K in a race until after graduating from college. For people who are listening, who kind of, uh, you know, they, they can read online and find out what it's like to be an elite basketball player or an elite football player, running is a relatively small community in that if you're not involved with running, you really have no idea. You see somebody run a 5K, a 10K, or maybe twice a year, you see, you see on the television, you see the, the New York Marathon and you see Boston, and you don't actually realize the amount of time for those elite female and male runners that they put in to be able to run that race. It's not like the person who's training to recreationally complete a marathon. So as an elite runner who, from looking at your resume, you tend to specialize now in the longer distances, how many events a year do you target for? So if you're considering half marathons and marathons and you're saying, okay, I'm looking at my schedule starting a year and a half from now, if everything goes well after giving birth and having a healthy baby, how many events do you target in a year as your A races or to be, these are the races that the absolute goal is to perform at the absolute top level? Yeah, absolutely. So everyone's contract is different as a professional um, and they're all secret. So we never know what people's, um, you know, expectations are with their company that they're working for. My expectation is I need to compete eight times a year. And so I always strive to compete at eight. Typically that ends up being more like 10 or 12, um, just because I, I do enjoy racing and I like having some smaller races at the early parts of the season and then working towards some of the bigger races. I find that, you know, I don't like to race a ton, but I like when I'm fit and ready to race, I like to race maybe once a month um, or so. Uh, and I think everyone's different in their approach as well. Um, you know, there are definitely some people who really benefit from, I'm just focusing on training. I'm going to go to a training camp and I'm, you know, not going to look at anything. <laughs> and I'm just going to stay, you know, super focused on what I'm doing and the task at hand. And then other people really like to see that fitness progress, um, you know, along the way and track it through racing. So everyone's different for me. Like I said, I prefer to race somewhere around eight to 12 times a year. Um, and when I'm marathon training, um, that's when racing becomes less prevalent because the training rigors of a marathon um, for, in preparation for a marathon are much more intense. Um, the mileage is higher. The workouts are longer. The long runs are more difficult to recover from. And so I tend to race less um, in a marathon buildup. Last spring, I was racing um, twice a month or more because I was doing shorter races. And so I was able to recover and then get ready for the next one. Um, and I also had some bucket list, 
bucket list races I was checking off. And uh, like I said, I was trying for that national title. So I had three national championships um, between March and May. So every season is a little bit different. And, um, you know, I think you learn a lot from each season and it can help you grow and change and become a better athlete down the line. So for me, um, yeah, I, I prefer to race, um, you know, relatively consistently throughout training, but, uh, when you're focused on a marathon, um, that's the main focus and you don't take your eyes off the prize. I remember I did a half marathon and, it was three weeks before New York in 2016. And I did an 11 and a half mile run the day before the half marathon. So I wasn't backing off at all. Um, my mileage was staying really high um, that whole week leading into the half. And we knew that I was going to go into the race tired. And that was actually a part of a goal because it helped simulate the second half of the marathon um, when you can race on tired legs. So there are definitely um, different strategies of training. I do not train um, as intensely as some of our top marathoners. I've never been able to handle um, extremely high mileage. My happy spot is like 90 to 95 per week, um, where a lot of our top female marathoners are running 120, 130 a week. Um, and mostly that's because I hate second runs. So typically like my main run would be in the morning, um, where I'm doing, you know, my hard workouts, my longer sessions, and then a lot of pros will double every single day. Well, they, they'll have a shorter run in the afternoon and I hate my second run. Um, and after forcing myself to do, you know, second runs, um, I just, was like, I, this isn't fun for me. I don't enjoy it. And so I try to do like two a week. Um, and then I'll cross train, uh, instead. So I have an elliptigo and I use that, um, or I'll get in the pool and I'll aqua jog or I'll spin. And I really like having that lower impact. Um, I think that it really helps me stay healthy and I also enjoy it so much more. If I can get on the elliptigo for half an hour, 45 minutes, um, listen to a podcast, listen to music, uh, call my parents and, you know, just have a phone conversation. Um, it's so much more enjoyable for me than having to force myself to go out and run again. So everyone's different. Um, and I think, you know, for me, it's, really been figuring out what I enjoy. And when I'm doing what I enjoy, I've become successful. Other than the running and the cross training, what sorts of training do you do as part of your program? I know we were talking uh, before we started recording, your dad gained a reputation when he was a runner of being one of the few runners who lifted heavy weights, which in the late 80s and early 90s was considered relatively unusual for a runner. And yet he's still running today. I know from looking at your Instagram page, you do some weight training, but what do you do uh, in addition to the running and the aerobic cross training? Absolutely. Yes. Uh, so probably learned from my dad as most of my <laughs> running skills and training skills are. Um, 
I've lifted my entire running career. So starting in eighth grade, um, I was on a lifting program um, and actually started working with a strength coach this past year. And I like to keep my hard days hard. So I lift on workout days. So I do, you know, a hard workout um, on Wednesdays, Wednesday morning, and it's usually somewhere between, you know, 14 and 16 miles um, and, you know, with intensity involved. And then I will have um, a second run that day and a lift. And so I usually lift on Wednesdays and Fridays. Um, and so then that way on my recovery days, I can really just focus on recovering. Um, and that's just a system that's worked for me. Everyone's a little bit different with that as well. Um, and my lifting sessions are 45 minutes and if they're pretty intense, but, uh, a lot of really great variety and a lot of running specific work. So, um, a lot of my warm up drills are single leg balance. Um, that sort of thing to really um, get the correct muscles firing. And then th th some of my heavier work is uh, focused on trying to gain some power and explosion in the stride. Because as we would get tired in the marathon, it's really important to have those muscles um, active and responding and working for you. Um, so, yeah. I absolutely think that lifting has been an essential part of my training. And then I do um, different stuff throughout the week. So typically I do uh, either lifting or a core session um, or yoga or Pilates um, every day except Saturday. And Saturday is the day where I just run and that's it. And kind of to change gears a little bit, when you work with some of the athletes that you coach, do you recommend or include resistance training in with the workout programs that you give them, or is it simply just a running program? Everyone's different. Again, so if they only have time to run, then we only focus on running because that has to be the number one goal. But a lot of my clients are really interested in having some strength training, some core workouts, um, and that sort of thing that are in addition to help, you know, support the running. And it's also really essential in helping clients um, not, you know, help them prevent injuries by uh, building up some strength. So I have some strength training programs that I provide and I switch it every four weeks so that they never get bored. Um, a lot of the work that I do is pretty simple, um, not uh, like, like doesn't require a full gym. So most people, I'm just like, okay, you need a physio ball. Um, you need a couple of 10 pound dumbbells. You need a foam roller, that sort of thing. Um, so I try not to get too specific with, um, you know, needing machines <laughs> and like a full gym. Um, so I, I try to have like a variety, um, and some upper body, some lower body, um, and a lot of just stuff that I've learned along the way that I found to be really beneficial. And I get so many positive remarks from my clients who say how they feel like the addition of even just two days a week of strength training or core work has really made a difference for them in their training. So that's really cool. 
And in your training as an elite runner, in addition to the resistance training and the cross training and the running, are there any uh, other things that you do that maybe somebody who's listening, who's curious would be say, well, I, didn't, I never thought of an uh, endurance runner or an endurance athlete doing that sort of thing? Well, back to high school, um, one thing that's interesting is I did a lot of horseback riding in high school, and I found that was like a cross-training um, for me, and it really helped strengthen um, certain uh, things that I think uh, really helped my running as a result. I didn't have a single injury in high school, which I think is fascinating, Um and so I do, I do wonder if maybe um, horseback riding is the trick to everything. <laughs> maybe I need to get back to that. Um, but I would say nowadays, um, for me, I find a weekly massage is essential. Um, when I'm in full marathon training, I will sometimes get two massages a week because my body's just getting beat up. And ultimately, you know, the whole idea of gaining fitness is creating stress on the body, having it recover and adapt a little bit stronger, putting more stress on it, having it recover and adapt. And that's the process. And so if it's not able to recover, then you're not going to adapt and then you're going to get hurt. Um, and you're not going to be able to soak in the training. So really putting forth, um, you know, specific, uh, protocol to help the body recover is so essential. So I, I will see um, a massage therapist uh, once or twice a week in heavy training. Um, every Sunday, I meet a group of local uh, women here in Colorado, and we go to the pool and we aqua jog for an hour and just sort of flush the body, reset everything. Um, and I love that hour because it's like social time. I get to hang out with my friends, um, but I'm helping simulate recovery. Um, and I will say, I think the pool is definitely a huge um, part of my body's ability to heal. Um, one of my favorite things is the hot tub. And I, I would love to get a hot tub at my house so that I could sit in it every day. Um, that's been one of the hardest biggest sacrifices while being pregnant is that I'm not allowed to get in the hot tub um, because I love stretching in the hot tub and that warmth um, really helps me feel like I can loosen up and get my muscles working again and just make my body happy. So um, that's something that I've really enjoyed. Um, if I have something sore or tight, I do an Epsom salt bath. So two cups of Epsom salts in a hot bath, soak for 30 minutes. Um, that's another little recovery trick that's really helped me out a lot. Um, I have a foam roller. I have the R8 roller. I have the R3 foot roller. Um, all those things uh, are really helpful. Um, and I have a lot of TheraBands, which I do a lot of different like TheraBand glute exercises before I run to try and get my muscles firing and, you know, woken up and ready to go. And then I started doing this class this fall um, at, you know, a gym in Boulder and it's called a mobility class, but essentially we stretch for an hour and it's incredible. Um, I would never stretch for an hour on my own, but going into this class, you know, we'll get out the, um, the foam roller, we'll have, 
um, you know, the, the tennis ball and we're rolling out and we're spending, you know, 10 minutes on the left glute, just loosening that up. And it's incredible. Um, and I walk out of there feeling so good. Um, so learning these little tricks that help me recover and, um, you know, help prepare me for my next workout has really made a difference for me. And you really hit on something in this uh, last part of the conversation about how the body has to recover from the stresses. So I think the final piece of the picture that a lot of amateur athletes and probably even elite athletes struggle with is the nutritional aspect. Do you work with a registered dietitian or have you in the past to figure out how to fuel your body and what works best for you? Yeah, so I have in the past. I try and gain tools each year. And when I was preparing for the New York City Marathon, I had access to the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs. And there's a really great nutritionist there named Alicia who was super helpful. Um, and so we just did some different testing, um, like body fat testing and body composition. And we would test every six weeks in my prep for the marathon. And it was really fascinating to see how the body would just naturally adapt as your training progressed. Um, and then I think she had a lot of really great ideas in terms of, you know, how to balance um, having a healthy lifestyle and a healthy diet that is, you know, conducive and supportive of your training and still living life. And I think that's such an essential thing. Um, because when I'm training, if I'm focused, you know, I may do a 20 week buildup to a big race. Um, and during that time, if I can't ever eat a donut or ever eat a candy bar, like that, that's ridiculous. Um, and so I think it's really helpful. And she short, she really helped show me, you know, it's okay. Um, she's, her idea was pick three things a week that are, you know, something that you've been craving, something that you want, something that is not, you know, necessarily going to be a beneficial <laughs> nutrient to you and have those but don't have four donuts, have one donut, um, you know, and that sort of thing. And so she said, if, you know, you do that three days a week, you're only going one day with, without it until you can have it or you want it. Um, and so I really liked that approach because I feel like it's so much more um, healthy and it can be a much better lifestyle approach. And it's something that can be long lasting versus um, these really hardcore, like, I'm going to super focus, and then I'm going to like not focus at all. Um, and so it's more just developing like good habits over time. Um, and I've definitely, um, you know, I've learned a lot from working with her from working with, you know, other people who have specialized in the nutrition field. Um, but I think that ultimately it does come down to each individual, what you need, um, and what is going to set you up for the best and really listening to your body. Um, the one thing I've learned is having a really consistent routine around races. Once you find something that works, stick with it, like don't mess it up. Um, and so for me, that's margarita pizza. The night before a race, I always have margarita pizza. And it's perfect. You can find it everywhere. 
So every city I go to, every race I go to, I can always find a margarita pizza the night before. And then I um, have mentioned this in the past, but I take um, my own breakfast with me so that that way it's always 100% consistent and I can have it at the exact time that I want to have it before the start of my race. And that's um, been really essential for me as well. So I use um, peanut butter power bars and I have a peanut butter power bar um, two and a half hours before the start of my race with coffee. And that's my go-to. Um, so I think it's essential to figure out what works for you and then stick with it. Um, and then the other thought with um, nutrition and everything is the hydration part. And this is all new with the marathon, right? Um, as I transition to that, figuring out what I can take in while running um, and while racing because your taste buds change and I've really struggled with, you know, drinks that I electrolyte drinks that I like when I'm not running, when I'm running hard, I absolutely hate and can't stand um, because they're too sweet. They're too strong. And so I've really been trying to figure that out because I struggled in New York. Um, I didn't get in all of the the nutrients that I needed. And I ended up really struggling the last 5k as a result. So that's something that I really would need to figure out before I attempt my next marathon. Um, and this past summer I was training, um, in preparation for New York. And I actually finally, was just like, you know what, I'm just going to try everything. And I just put a different drink in every bottle. And I have like six bottles in the back of my husband's bike. And every three miles, I try a different drink and see what I like. And to be honest, I found I like flat coats the best. And I have no idea because I don't drink soda outside of that. Um, I've never really liked Coke or drank uh, Coke in the past. But um, while I was prepping for, um, you know, trying to figure out what I could drink during a marathon, I liked the old school flat Coke idea. So who knows? Maybe I'll try that and maybe that'll be the trick for me in the future. And that has the advantage that if you happen to forget to bring it, you're able to find it anywhere. Exactly. So we're talking to Neely Gracie. She is an elite runner and also a coach. We want to switch gears a little bit and have you put the coaching hat on and talk a little bit about the coaching experience. If you listened to a first part of our podcast two weeks ago, Neely talked about how she minored in coaching in college and started in 2013 or 2014 with six runners and now has, I think she said, 75 runners. And talk a little talk a little bit about how the coaching minor helped you when you transitioned from just being a runner to coaching. I know coaching is something that a lot of people think, well, I can run so I can coach. And that isn't true. There's coaching minors. I know down the road from you in Denver at Denver University, Brian Garrity actually has a master's program in coaching. And it's something that mm -hmm. people people who are whether they're uh, working with runners or they're working with their kids' uh, youth sports, they can really learn from people who have like you who have taken classes in coaching. There's kind of the art of coaching and the science of coaching, and I think having a minor or a major in coaching kind of melds the two of them. Yeah, I mean, we all can, are super knowledgeable in something, right? Like we all have specialties, um, things that we are extremely interested, things that we really know a lot about, but 
there's a difference between you knowing a lot about them and you being able to tell other people um, how to know a lot about them too. And so I think that's been um, the biggest thing for me is, yes, I'm a professional runner. I've been running for 14 and a half years um, at a very high level. I've been around running my whole life. I have a lot of knowledge and a lot of experience, but I don't know it all. And I know that. Um, and so I think that's one of the things that I've learned by being a coach is that it's okay to not know it all. And one of the things that I find is really helpful for me is I have a lot of contacts and a lot of really smart people who I can talk to, um, who can give me the answers if I don't know something. So that's been really essential for my coaching is um, having those resources available and being able to say, hey, I don't know it all. And if I don't know about this, I'm going to find out because I can, I'm going to help you through this. Um, and then having the coaching minor has really helped me, um, you know, really understand some of the mental aspects and like psychological components that come with uh, being an athlete and coaching um, because I know what I do, but so I've been doing this for so long that some of the things I do are just automatic. I don't even really think about it anymore. And the coaching minor really helped me learn to break down each of those things um, and explain them and recognize that it's not going to be automatic for everyone. And if I can help them learn, then they will gain valuable to tools that will help it become more uh, a part of their training and what they do. And it will help them become a better athlete and work towards their, their goals as a result. So I really strive, um, you know, to make sure that my clients are getting their needs met and that I have everything broken down to a point where they can understand and apply it and learn and grow as an athlete themselves. Um, and then in terms of um, my communication degree, I think that has been extremely essential um, because it's all about building relationships with my clients. Um, you know, me getting to know them ha is so essential because every person is different. Everyone has different strengths and weaknesses and different stresses in life outside of training. Um, you know, the clients that I'm working with have families, have full-time jobs. You know, they have um, a lot of other stuff on their plate, and yet they're still pursuing these athletic goals. And so I really strive to help them find a balance. Um, with everything. And that's why all of my coaching is completely individualized because every person is, is an individual. Everyone has a different goal um, and everyone has a different life and they, they need and deserve that because that's how they're going to succeed and do the best they can. You mentioned when we were talking before we started recording that you started with six athletes. You now have 75 athletes in the United States and a few in Canada if you could describe what's the perfect candidate to be coached by Neely and what's the person who contacts you, who you just realize based on your experiences and knowledge that this probably isn't a good fit and maybe somebody else might be better to coach them. Absolutely. So over the years, I've figured out a couple things. Um, 
So when I started with my six clients in 2013, um, I was pretty much open to coaching anyone, anyone who would want me to coach them, give, give it a go. Um, and then I've learned over the years that it doesn't, if we don't click, it doesn't benefit any of us. Um, it doesn't help me because I, I don't understand um, exactly how I can help them. And it doesn't help them because I'm, I'm not understanding how to help them. Um, so, you know, to touch on that side of it, I think, um, you know, I start off with a 30-minute phone consultation. And so we have a 30-minute discussion, and it gives them an opportunity to get to know me, to ask me questions, um, you know, for me to provide some of my philosophy, some of the ways that I think I could help them. And then it gives me an opportunity to hear their thoughts and what they want from me. And sometimes I recognize, you know, I think that they want more out of me than what I can give, Um you know, they probably need more of like a hands-on in-person coach because they need someone who's really going to be motivating, who's going to make sure that they're getting all their runs in um, and that sort of thing. So I'm not the person uh, to come to if, you know, you need a constant reminder to get out the door. Um, But I will say that I have clients who, um, have said that they felt a little bit stale and stagnant in their training and they come to me and one of the things I really enjoy doing is providing a lot of variety and that has helped perk up some runners who have felt like um, you know their current training wasn't as fun anymore so there's definitely different scenarios with that um, I'm not the best coach for beginners Um I would say that's probably my biggest downfall as a coach is that I sometimes completely forget that some people have no idea, um, you know, what, uh, you know, the marks on a track mean. So for example, you know, if I put 12 by 200 meters at 50 seconds on 200 meter jog, I I think that that's pretty clear and sometimes it's not. And sometimes I have to explain that, um, you know, 200 meters is halfway around the track. You have to do it in lane one, um, you know, and that sort of thing. And you're going to be doing one 250 seconds and you're going to be jogging as slow as you need to, to recover for, um, the next 200. And then you'll start at the same point that you started last time and you'll do it again. And, I grew up on the track. I didn't realize, um, you know, that some people have never been on a track before. And so um, I think that's one of my biggest downfalls as a coach. Um, I once had a client who uh, kept the same pair of shoes for a whole year because I didn't realize that I had to tell her that, um, you know, she should get a new pair of shoes um, (laughs) once she hit a certain amount of miles. And she was actually a pretty good runner doing about 40 to 50 miles a week. And she kept the same pair of shoes for an entire year. Um, and I felt like a horrible coach afterwards. Um, so I definitely, I definitely learned along the way and learned that it's way better to over explain everything, um, to provide way more information than what you think you have to. Um, but I'm still not perfect. And I know that. 
So I think that those who are very new to running benefit more from um, having someone that's in person who can help them. Um, those who are familiar with running and have goals and want to get better, I think that those are the type of people um, that I can work with really well. Um, I can provide, you know, some really uh, great variety in training. Um, and a lot of my approach is I want to take you from where you are to where you want to be. And we're going to take baby steps to get there. Um, I don't like to rush training. I don't like to force training. Um, I want fitness to grow and build naturally. I want my clients to have a lot of success. I want them to be challenged, but gain confidence from their workouts. So I don't want my athletes constantly failing in workouts. I'd rather err on the side of conservative um, so that they can be successful in their, uh, in their training. And then that will help set them up for better races. Um, and as an athlete myself, that's my approach as well. I'm not a workout hero. A lot of the workouts I do are actually, um, you know, pretty unimpressive compared to what I can do in a race. And I'd way rather have it that way for me and way rather have it that way for my clients is that you show up and you race really well. Um, you're not burned out and you're not, um, you know, fatigued from all of the hard training that you've put in. And you mentioned that uh, your clients all have jobs, families, other responsibilities in addition to running. How do you approach a client who either a new client or somebody you've been working with a while and they tell you they have this goal and looking at what their performance is, you realize that this is probably not a realistic goal, even if they take baby steps. How do you address that with them? Yeah, so that's another thing I've learned um, is to be completely honest with my clients. Um, Every now and again, I'll have a client who will say, hey, you know, I have this really big goal. I want to qualify for the Olympic trials, for example, but I've only run um, 301 and the Olympic trials for the women is 245 for the marathon. So, you know, they need to shave 16 minutes off of their um, current personal best. And a lot of what I say is, you know what, we need to set up these baby steps. So for the next season, we need to become a 255 marathoner. And then after that, we can reassess. Let's figure out what we need to change, how we can do better. And then let's become a 250 marathoner. And it's something that I think um, a lot of people have realistic goals, but not a realistic time frame. And recognizing that this isn't going to take six months. This could take two or three years. Um, and them being okay with that approach. Um, and I think, you know, one of the, one of the other things that I've learned through this is, um, it doesn't help me or the athlete to just let them do what they want to do. Um, I've had a couple clients who, for example, um, you know, run a marathon. It doesn't go the way that they'd like. Uh, you know, one girl got a stomach cramp um, and, you know, had to walk for a mile or two. And then she was, you know, five minutes off her goal and she was really disappointed. Um, and so she wanted to run a, uh, a marathon in three weeks and try again. And I really am honest with them. Let's weigh the pros and cons. Um, let's not it may work out. 
it may be great. Um, you know, because you were able to walk, you know, the last couple miles um, of the marathon, you may not be as exhausted from that. We can call it a hard, you know, a really hard long run. We'll take a couple days here to recover, reset, and then let's try and carry the fitness and see if you can put the pieces together at the next one. Um, but there's also the risk that your body's done. You're tired. You were prepped. You were peaked for this race and it may not come together. And so to be really open and honest, like, I don't know. I don't know if you're going to meet your goal if you do, you know, a, a redo um, in three more weeks and see if that happens. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But I'd like them to really be prepared and for them to know, um, you know, that there there's different ways that it could go. And I don't like to sugarcoat things and, you know, say, hey, uh, like you're going to be amazing. You could do a marathon every weekend and, you know, get better and better because that's not true and that's not realistic. Um so I think it's really helpful. And then after that, it's like, you're done. Like, you are not running for two weeks. Do not even ask. You know, like, it's really essential that you rest your body now um, because you put it through a lot. Um, so I really try to be open and honest with my clients with what I think is a good idea and what I think is a bad idea. And then I like them to be the one that makes the final decision. So these are the pros and cons of this situation. Um, and the decision is yours and I will support you and we'll do the best we can and we'll see what happens. We've had the good fortune to be talking with Neely Gracie. She is an elite runner and a coach of endurance runners. She's given us some great insight on what she does in her elite running career to make sure that she's properly prepared for races and more importantly, recovering from training. I think her feedback on what's important for her as a coach and for giving the clients that she works with honest answers and also having realistic goals is something that is really necessary when running marathons and running half marathons seems to be a bucket list item for many athletes and many individuals. Neely, I want to thank you for taking time to talk to Moving to Live and good luck when your running career resumes. And in addition to that, congratulations on your pregnancy and upcoming little one. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play, and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore MOV number two LIV. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.